This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, we've been enjoying a guided tour of the Washington, D.C. Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of the things I noticed as I was walking through the various rooms and the hallways was the art on the walls. Mormon temple art is, for the most part, very literal. There are scenes of John the Baptist with Jesus in the River Jordan, of church founder Joseph Smith encountering the angel Moroni, and of Jesus and an army of angels descending to earth. But what jumped out to me was all of the people in the art I saw on the tour were white. It was a topic raised at an LDS-sponsored conference I attended in 2018. My guest Felicia Jimenez was also there. Shortly after, she published a widely read blog post about representation and the Black legacy in the LDS tradition. Jimenez herself is a Texan who was raised Baptist. She converted to the church in 2008 after meeting a missionary on a long-haul flight from Texas to San Diego. She did her mission in the Baltimore region and had her marriage sealed in the D.C. temple. And although she is Black and the LDS Church is predominantly white, Jimenez was drawn to its mission and core teachings. She is passionate about her faith and about calling her church to be anti-racist. The LDS Church, like many American religious institutions, has a painful history when it comes to race and slavery. Although founder Joseph Smith was an early abolitionist who extended the priesthood to early Black converts, The church position changed radically after Smith was murdered. His successor, Brigham Young, preached that black people bore the mark of Cain. It was a biblical reference to the book of Genesis. Young preached that blacks were therefore inferior to whites and should be subordinate to them. In 1852, the church officially banned blacks from the priesthood. That lasted for more than a century. In the wake of the civil rights movement, the church began studying its race relations and theology. They formed what was called the Genesis Group, led by a group of black LDS members. After their dialogue with the church, LDS President Spencer Kimball said he received a revelation and reversed the ban and extended the priesthood to black men in 1978. The black LDS group, which organized five years ago, follows in the tradition of the Genesis Group, but today, its mission has evolved. Felicia Jimenez explains. Our mission is to unify the Black community and anyone who supports it. So we do that through any kind of spiritual uplift, cultural celebration, um, historical inspiration, and restorative healing and connection with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we love to participate in specifically and geared towards our Black community. How have things changed in the last five years? Um, You know, just this is kind of difficult because in this moment, I'm going to speak for myself and not the organization. Um, I don't feel that there has been a lot of growth in that department. I think they've done things like worked with the NAACP, um, but we haven't really seen a lot of fruits of those labors. I think that a lot of members of our board would say the same thing. They don't feel like a lot of progress has been made, Um, specifically things that Blacks and African-Americans in particular would like to see in the church. I want to bring your attention to a change that the LDS Church made in 2020 to its general handbook, Mm -hmm. in which it was explicit, stating that a person's standing with God depends on devotion to commandments, not the color of their skin. 
Now, at the time, that was two years ago, you did speak out publicly welcoming the change, but warning that words are not alone. Mm-hmm. As a leader and a board member of the Black LDS Project, from your vantage point, did the change in 2020 have an impact on the conversation? For me in particular, I would say um, not really. What I'm learning is that a lot of people, we are starting from fundamentally in a different place of what racism is. And so a church that is predominantly white will view um the majority of the time will view racism as calling someone names or overt discriminatory practices, right? Um, telling someone, well, you can't do this because you're black or or because you're you know, Latina or because you're this or that. Uh, and so when those things are not happening and when they are implicit and when they are covert, then our members and also leaders of the church go, well, that's not a thing. That's not happening here. And members, specifically Black members, are saying, no, that absolutely happens. We haven't done a good enough job to to break those things down and say, hey, these are things we are no longer teaching and we need this to be understood, that anyone teaching this is not in compliance with the gospel. They are not in compliance with being a Christian and, and so on and so forth. It sounds, though, like the struggle has to do with other behaviors or actions that might not be so visible. Correct. Help me understand. Can you explain like what that an example of what that would look like? Absolutely. So um, in the past, our church, there were lots of church teachings that said whenever we go to heaven, um, that the curse of Cain would be lifted and we would all be white. So that is no longer explicitly taught in the church. Somewhere, however, the older generation does still believe that. So what ends up happening is you have an entire generation that believes that race is not a big deal or race is not important because, hello, in the end, we're all going to be white. That curse is going to be lifted from you. What you're experiencing right now is a curse from your ancestors, even though our doctrine explicitly states that we will not um, be held accountable for Adam's transgressions, nor our ancestors' sins. So it's just this this paradox, because when you do that, now the way you treat others, uh, it might not be explicit, but you have these values and these beliefs that you hold that are no longer um, being taught and that have never been accurate from day one. We'll hear, you guys are so hung up on race, but when we go to heaven, like everybody's going to be white and you don't have to worry about that or, you know, that there's, that this drastic change is going to happen after this life. And so until um, those things which are inherently racist are rooted out and being taught and told, hey, when we taught that, that was not accurate. Anyone teaching that now is not in compliance with the gospel Um, And so we have to move forward and there has to be consequences for those things if it's continuing to be taught after we've said that you cannot do that and these are not accurate. So we haven't gotten to that point yet. So that's where the difficulty lies in, in these conversations, because we have members that are upholding things that are just not accurate. Having just done the the D.C. Temple tour, the pictures, the images, I don't recall seeing paintings in which the individual's who were being depicted as anything but white. I'm curious how you see the relationship in the art that is in the temple. It was a subject that was very um, near and dear to me because it is very frustrating to go into what we feel is our father's house 
and to not have pictures of yourself. If I'm looking at all the angels in this picture, you're letting me know that all the angels are white, that everyone that reaches angelhood or whatever it is or whoever, you know, shouted and jumped for joy when Jesus was coming to earth or whatever it is, is white. So where are the children that look like me? I wrote this blog post and I said, if you went to someone's home, right, and they have four children, and yet all you saw in the home were of one child, and that was little Timmy. They had his kindergarten graduation, his high school graduation, his little t-ball and all the things, and then the other three children were missing. You would think there was something oddly, like, off, right, about this family. You would actually feel extremely uncomfortable. And they're just walking you through their house, right? Giving you a tour. This is Timmy here. This is Timmy there. And then you're sitting here like, okay, but you also have three other children. Where are they? There's a painting now going around in several temples of a black woman and she's kneeling to pray. And so everyone will say, oh my goodness, I thought about your blog post and I saw this picture and, you know, I thought about you. And I'm like, yeah, like that's one picture. Like you got to go through an entire building and see yourself everywhere. And then I'm supposed to be thankful for this one picture in some obscure place in the temple. So again, that is where these blind sides and these blind spots are in the church where you have this church that has members across the globe. This is not in a U.S. church. You know what I'm saying? Like we have on in every continent where there are people, our church is there. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? And so whenever we are sitting here and we look at these pictures and, and we don't have Asians depicted, we don't have our indigenous population, um, we don't have Africans, we don't have, like, there is a problem. And so these are absolutely the things that we are talking about that need to change. I hear you're really passionate about this and you see representation mm-hmm. on, you know, in the art, a reflection and speaking to kind of a deeper sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. At the press conference when the D.C. Temple Media Day uh, was taking place, Dr. Amos Brown, who is a member of the NAACP board and not a member of, of mm-hmm. the church, uh, but a Christian, spoke passionately and in, in strong support of the mm-hmm. church and particularly in his relationship to President um, Russell mm-hmm. Nelson. And he spoke of the financial commitment that the church is making towards scholarships to HBCUs mm-hmm. and a fellowship that's made in his name for an upcoming trip to Ghana. My question for you is, are the types of actions and the words of Dr. Amos Brown, do they speak to you and to your organization? Is it enough? You know, the the question for me is, I would ask someone, would you rather have someone who gave you money or someone who actually spent time teaching you life lessons and who mentored you. I do not want to say in any shape, form or fashion that what the church is doing is bad or wrong or anything like that. Please give as much money as possible to HBCUs. Please give as much money to, you know, all all of the other efforts, the humanitarian efforts and all the things that that's great. But also there are things that need to be done the D.C. Temple, Amberine, I just want you to know, has a very um, significant and, you know, important place in my heart. I was married in that temple. I actually served my mission in the Baltimore, Maryland mission. So that that temple I saw all the time. Um, and so there's a lot of significance there for me. And for you to, you know, say that even now in one of the most diverse areas in all of America, 
the members that go there still can't see themselves in the temple. I mean, cool that you're giving to HBCUs. I think that that's beautiful. I want them to continue that. But I also feel that there's just so much work to be doing. And sometimes we um, like blindness comes by looking beyond the mark. That's how I feel. What kind of actions would make you feel like the organization is moving forward? What are one or two things that you would like to see church leaders engage? Sure. Uh, So I think one uh, really big thing is to start with an apology, because I feel that a lot of black members are sitting in the church. This is not all. Some are like, oh, that doesn't pertain to me. I don't care. And that's fine for you. But there are a lot of members that are hurting and that want to feel healing through the church saying, hey, for this amount of years, we blocked black people from receiving the priesthood. Um, This affected families being together forever. We have practices that we were not able to participate in. And there was never an apology for the for the implementing of those racist policies. And so a lot of us are waiting for the church to acknowledge wrongdoing in that and to say, hey, this actually was not revelation from God. God is actually not racist. Um, We have had leaders that misinterpreted things and therefore discriminatory practices were in place. And we apologize for that. I believe it was last year we had an issue where some incorrect racist doctrine was taught in our brand new Come Follow Me manual. And so the church basically, instead of sending out this statement, this memo to all the congregations and saying, hey, you need to tell your congregation that we no longer believe in these things, that anyone teaching this again is not in compliance with the gospel. You are not aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But instead, they said, hey, we'll just kind of leave it up to you guys to figure out what you want to do with it. And because we have leaders that are not comfortable discussing racist things, that are not comfortable discussing the history of the church, many of them just swept it under the rug and said, hey, um, only use the one that's online, but don't use the one that's in the manual. So the first thing would be to apologize. And the second thing would be action to continue to acknowledge at every single turn where these things happen. This is not what we do as an organization. This is not what we do as the Church of Christ. So if we want to be an anti-racist church as opposed to a non-racist church, then there are things that we have to explicitly do to be anti-racist. As you get ready to gather as an organization in May, what's on the agenda for the Black LDS organization that you are a part of? What are you hoping to accomplish when you gather together in May? Um, specifically we are focusing on is how rich of a heritage um, we come from is, right? Um, How rich that is and our traditional ways of worship, um, how we as Black people have enjoyed and felt the spirit. Everything we do in our revival this year is going to be centered on Black joy. And so um, if it does not bring black joy, we are not talking about it. We don't have time to talk about what the church is doing or what they haven't been doing. Um, To make a long story short, this division that is being caused strictly by people who refuse to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, um, which is a big doctrine within our church. So it is causing this division of black people and other ethnicities having to figure out ways to go back to our original 
roots of worship and congregating in ways that are comfortable for us, where we can shout and praise and we can do our amens and we can say all these things that are comfortable for us because our church is a very quiet church. Our way of filling the spirit is through music and through hallelujahs and amens. um, And that's what we plan to bring for this revival. So anyone who uh, is here, who will be visiting who will be fellowshipping with us that day. That is what we plan on bringing to you is black church through the revival of our spirits and all the things that we need. And we have zero desire to talk about what the church is or is not doing. For those mm-hmm. unfamiliar um, and who've never attended, what what is what's what is Listen, a revival? Amber, and you, you really hit it because for black folks, we are so used to going to um, revivals and we're there all day and, you know, we're sweating and we're singing and we're worshiping. Um, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a revival of the spirit. It is to to revive something within you. And that is what we plan on doing. So you are correct. Um, revival is not a word that I don't think I've ever heard it. I've been a member since 2008. I don't think I've ever heard that word um, used, especially in the in the way in which, you know, people in the South and specifically black people are familiar with revivals. So, yeah, we are we're really excited about it. If you've never been to a revival, you should come to ours. We are going to talk about symbols um, and materials, things that have been passed down from generation to generation, our traditions, our culture. One thing I don't want to forget is that revival is about liberation. It is about freeing yourself. It is about understanding what that even means. What does it mean to free yourself in Christ, you know, and to free yourself from shackles that you're in right now that maybe you didn't even know. Felicia Jimenez lives in Dallas, Texas. She's a board member of Black LDS Legacy. You can find links to their website in this week's show notes. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about the D.C. Temple or about our guests, head over to our episode page at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can learn about us, read the show notes, check out our archives, and sign up for the newsletter. You can also listen to this program on a podcast app of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen. This episode was produced by me, Kimberly Winston, and Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.